to Look-See, the podcast for the art-curious in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture. On first look, the flowers that are the primary subject of Nancy Bloom's work are reassuringly familiar. But look for a few minutes, and you begin to notice that the things that you're looking at are not what they seem. Within her botanical drawings, Nancy uses icons like a drawing of a plum blossom strongly outlined in black ink and shadowy spirographs that mimic the shape of a flower but also evoke the space age. Also, these flowers wouldn't live side by side in the physical world, but in her work they're intimately entwined. These flowers are botanical superheroes, with agency and power without relation to human beings. We're not a part of their world. The riotous energy that's barely contained in Nancy's detailed wonderlands doesn't depend on us. These plants carry on joyfully without us. I talked with Nancy a few weeks ago at the Reynolds Gallery as her current exhibition, New Work, was being installed. I'm Nancy Bloom, and I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I am a visual artist. I make large drawings on paper, usually with a lot of botanical imagery or abstract imagery, and I also make a lot of public art. Nancy, thank you for being here with me today for the Look-See podcast at the Reynolds Gallery. And it's really fun to be here today a little bit before the opening of your new show here at Reynolds, and the work is looking amazing as it's being hung downstairs. So thanks for taking a few minutes to talk with me about the work. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. I have, you know, a long connection to this community, and this is now my second show with Reynolds. It's a place that I have a lot of interest in as an arts community, and it's a place that I always like to bring my work back to. We are lucky for that. And you also have an incredibly beautiful book that's been produced in conjunction with this exhibition that really is the story of your whole career up until this point. And Mm -hmm. it has been created in collaboration with a couple of folks here in Richmond, Ashley Kistler and Angeline and Charlie Robertson at Mm -hmm. Scout Design. Oh, my gosh. So... The reason I first came to Richmond, I actually lived in this town for four years, is because Ashley Kistler, who's a remarkable curator and community arts person, invited me to do something at the Visual Arts Center. She took on this project to make an artist monograph for me, and Scout Design is an impeccable design team. I mean, it's just been a wonderful process over the last year, creating it. Well, and the product is gorgeous. I was enjoying the the tactile experience of the book before you and I sat down to have a conversation. It really is yeah. is something that you just really want to get your hands on. So that's, that's so wonderful. Well, Nancy, I wanted to talk a, a little bit with you today about your work and especially the direction that your work has gone in the past few years mm-hmm. and with the the incredibly beautiful and detailed drawings that you've been doing that are inspired by 
botanicals, but also are a little bit of a fantasy world in and of themselves. Perhaps, and they, yes. they look, they look they incredibly realistic, but if you look closely, you'll find that they have some surprises. Thank you. One of the things that I read that you had talked about that was fascinating to me that I had never thought about is this idea of drawing as labor. Mm-hmm. and that you had always drawn mm-hmm. in, in your life as a creative person, but that you were drawn to this medium as a way to express yourself as an artist, and particularly in the detailed and painstaking way that you, you express it, mm-hmm. in part because it is an act of labor, and the labor can be seen in it mm-hmm. if the person viewing it thinks for half a minute about what it took to make the, mm-hmm. the thing that is on the wall. So can you talk a little bit more about that idea? I mean, there's so many things in it. I think when I say labor and the craft of it, it's that I want people to have the experience of sort of looking at the overall, but I want somebody to be able to go up to a drawing and learn how to spend more time looking at an image and getting to see how something evolved and was created over time. So my drawings, you sort of see every single line and every single mark that I made to make it happen. And I just sort of have hoped that that allows people to participate in the work a little bit more. The presence of the hand in a lot of things we do now is not that available to us. Everything that we do is developed to a point where there's a bit of abstraction. So even if we're relating to our computers, you know, it was all fundamentally crafted and created and designed, but we don't have the actual hand in that experience, unless it's our hand working on it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that I really want to have, is the idea of meticulous time being taken to enjoy something. Even what you said about the book, I think the designers and Ashley felt very strongly, as did I, that it becomes something that's tactile, that you want to hold. It's a book. We know how to have an experience with a book, but we wanted to be it to be that much even more. So you did want to fondle the pages in the same way you might want to fondle one of my drawings, although you're not allowed to. I am allowed to, <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's true when I did when I walked into the gallery and I should say too that that we are here today on the the day that the show is being installed and so mm-hmm. you may hear voices in the background of, of the guys downstairs who are beautifully and meticulously mm-hmm. hanging up mm-hmm. your drawings but when I walked into the gallery and looked at your work as it was being hung, I just had almost an irresistible urge to touch them. You can see the hand in them. And that makes me also think of the experience that I have with handmade ceramics. You're referencing the idea of being able to see the hand of the maker in your drawings. Brings to mind uh, the experience that I have oftentimes with ceramics, and it might be something that's very utilitarian, like a mug or a plate or a bowl that's been thrown, and you can actually put your fingers where the potter's fingers were, and there's something really, you know, you connect with another human being in that way. I've always drew, but I started making art again during college, and I became interested in ceramics specifically because of its tactility. So I was always around potters, 
So I was around people who were crafting things for use. And I, for whatever reason, didn't really have that impulse. And so, you know, what I have down in the gallery are these large oversized ceramic flowers that I actually did craft individually and then put on the wall. And what I liked about ceramics was I was a tactile person. The experience was amazing. And then the people that got it could touch it. And I had a really awesome father who, when I was growing up, took me to a lot of museums because he wanted to cultivate my interest in art, which I had an interest in art. But I did not enjoy not touching anything. You know, it took away what was my interest. So then you become the artist, and then you can touch whatever you want. I can. I can. (laughs) So your work now, you work for the most part on paper. Mm -hmm. And paper, the paper itself, using paper as a ground, Mm -hmm. seems to be something that's also very important in your work. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, there's something about paper that is so immediate. We use it. We all use it multiple times a day in some form and it's vulnerable it's a it's a vulnerable material it can be ruined in all sorts of ways very quickly and i love that it's that close to impermanence in a sense but that i invest all this time in it well people who look at it know what it feels like to feel paper one of the groups of works that's on display in the show is a group of works that are black drawings mm-hmm. And you were showing them to me when we were downstairs, mm-hmm. and you showed me a set that were really among the first that you did. Mm-hmm. There were this black on black, and they really are just incredible. The tactile quality, mm-hmm. those were the ones that I just, oh, I just want to <laughs> touch them so badly. Mm-hmm. They look like they're just kind of polished wax almost mm-hmm. and etched. And, and the first series looks like it was inspired in part by... Asian drawings and the impermanence of paper makes me think of the idea of a mandala Mm -hmm. and the creation of something that's very intricate and that is very labor-intensive knowing that it's not permanent. So is there part of that kind of spiritual inspiration underlying your work as well? There's some level on which what you're seeing depicted are flowers then there are a lot of entry points for that experience. My work is accessible. It's graphic and inviting, and it's tactile, and it's colorful. And the things you're looking at are things we think we know. It's just like saying, hi, come see me, come enjoy, right? But then there are other things in it, which is the time and the labor as real things of the human experience. And then the paper as a real thing about physicality or lack of physicality. And then, you know, those things all lead to the idea of ritual a little bit and repetition and what happens through a day or through a life. And so the imagery that you see down there is directly taken from Buddhist tanka paintings. And, you know, I went in my own direction a little bit, but the reference is very specific. You know, and they're talking about temporality. It's about the idea that the sky is always blue, like the cloud might come and the cloud will go. So it's a really nice way to kind of more directly bring that symbolic imagery in. A lot of the time I'm speaking of those ideas underneath everything anyway, but that's a little bit more direct reference. And then the drawings that are up 
I do think because of my craft background in ceramics, I work with paper in a way that it's as material as it can be. So I embossed the paper with my pencil and you can get a line. And so you feel that ridge of that line and then I build up with a waxy surface. And you know, and, and what, so you're always like, as you're really looking, it's like your eye is going over a landscape almost, or surface. And I speak about a, an artist, Ross Blechner, the painter, a little bit in the book because I was making all dimensional objects that were wall-based for a long time, and I was very interested in that space between the shadow and the object, and I always felt that those objects, like you would want to touch them or lick them, you know, they just were like... And then I saw him in his work and his magnificent painting be able to express a dimensionality and that sort of seduction you know, and pull people into dimensionality and seduction, but on a two-dimensional piece. And that's a very skillful thing to do that Ross Blechner does. And then he's he's happens to be, his paintings are very elegant as well. But they're ritual-based, too. He often talks about death through flowers or whatever. Your work is also very contradictory for me. Okay, good. Um, you have... <laughs> So your process is very precise and exact, uh-huh. which we've talked about a little yeah. bit. But particularly with your flower drawings, uh-huh. the experience of viewing them is, is a very sort of riotous, not chaotic, but it is a riot of life. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's very contradictory, mm-hmm. the close-up and the wide-angle views right. of your work. That's very rewarding to me to hear that you have that experience because that would ultimately be what I would love for somebody to have. I'm great with that experience of seeing something and seeing the cacophony of it, you know, because that is truthful. And I always feel like, you know, depicting a flower is kind of a stupid thing to do. It's not that easy to do something with a flower in this day and age and try to make it smart you know but I really felt I've always felt like I want the flower to have agency my vantage point in drawing these is not for me as a human being to be looking at something that is a still life it's that I think flowers I think plants have a tremendous amount of agency I'm talking about the qualities where they might be ephemeral, but they're way going to outlive us on this planet. You know, we are going to be gone, and the plants are just going to break down our buildings and reclaim it all. I find that very comforting. <laughs> One of my oldest friends is a molecular biologist and botanist, and he actually studies plant movement because they don't, we don't know what plants know, but we know more and more of their cognizance. I can say that because I'm an artist. He, as a scientist, can't say that because we don't really know what consciousness is. We don't know what the mind is or the brain. But even Buddhists didn't see, in my understanding, historically, plants as sentient. But now we see they're like whole networks. You know, a forest is communicating with itself cross species all the time as a huge network. It's magnificent. So anyway, I'm sorry I'm going on, but I really love trying to get myself out as a human being, like I'm almost a voyeur, seeing 
what the plant does. Well, and I think that's something that many of us have intuited our whole lives. I remember the experience as a child knowing that a storm was coming because I could see that the tree knew that the storm right. was coming. Right. You know, that right. we had these beautiful silver maples. They would, their leaves would turn over. And you knew that's when a storm was coming. And it always came, even though you couldn't see it or sense it, but the tree could. That's beautiful. And I, th- I think that's right. I think people who pay attention understand intuitively the intelligence of the life around us. And whether it's visible in a way we understand or not visible, I'm really curious about that. I think one of the reasons I stepped into abstraction a little bit more is that I'm a meditator, and so I spend a lot of my time not listening to my brain that much and feeling like there's so much more. One of the things that you said a few minutes ago was that in your work, you're trying to take the human being out of it. It's not, it's not about as were some of the botanical drawings that you take a lot of your lessons and inspiration from, but then do your own thing with, Mm -hmm. those drawings were intended, they were a product of the Enlightenment, and they were intended to be a drawing that that we learned scientific facts about. And so it was very human-oriented, and it was for human consumption. And in your work, you are trying to take the human being out of the experience as much as possible. And I think one of the primary ways that you do that is with your very interesting use of perspective. And I use that term loosely because really there isn't a lot of perspective in your work. And it's so it's so sort of joyously disorienting. You know, right. you can't tell, are these giant plants and I'm like a shrunk person? Or am I zooming in? You know, is this a magnified view? There's no horizon there's no sky peeking through between the leaves there's nothing to kind of ground you in oh well this is where I am standing while I'm looking at this drawing you are not in it as a human being as a viewer you don't place yourself in it and that's a very interesting experience that's what I've tried to do I don't think that's what is customary in our culture. That's not the positioning that we tend to have. That does create some of the tension in the experience. When you are with this work for a little while, that's one of the things that starts to surprise you. You know, you walk in and you see these beautiful detailed drawings of plants and flowers. When you stand there a little bit longer, you notice, you start to think, hmm, you know, what am I looking at here? And then another thing that you might need a little guidance to know if you're not a plant expert is that although you base your drawings of the individual plants and flowers and and fungi and, Mm -hmm. and other sort of botanical world characters in your drawings on scientific fact, illustration, illustration, In the real world, they might not live in the same ecosystem. They might not be growing during the same time of year. You would never experience what you're looking at. So it's not like you went out into the woods and took a picture and then drew what you saw. Yeah, I'm not trying to depict an actual landscape. And I have specifically put varying species together that wouldn't live together in the same ecosystem because I'm not trying to be didactic at all. 
When I first started the botanicals, there was an image of a plum blossom, which still remains in my drawings, a central flower or a variety of flowers or plants interacting, a, a sort of background image of Germanic illustrations of parts of plants that were used to study the parts of the plants, and the fourth element are, are Spirograph, which was a children's toy in the United States that was specifically popular in the 60s and 70s, and it created sort of a pop culture flower. And the first thing I wanted to say was, varying cultures all say flower, but as human beings, we tend to use things for our own purpose. So they're not just observing the flowers, they're saying, we want to study flowers, we want flowers to function poetically, we want, you know, depending on the values of the culture that's depicting the flower, they're depicting it differently. To be about science, to be about poetry, to be about consumerism, to whatever it is. I didn't want there to be such a hierarchy of, oh, it's better if we study it. It's better if we reflect on it. Yeah, you know? I think my mind is going all kinds of different ways. Yeah, I'm think thinking about the, um, the abstraction of things that exist in the physical world, for example, that ultimately became a character in the Chinese or the Japanese mm -hmm. language that we don't really recognize anymore, mm -hmm. but it's the repetition or the way that Arabic artists repeat yeah. the same patterns that if you know their reference to the natural world or to architecture, you can see, oh, it's that. But even with the style of drawing that is, I think of it as having kind of an outline, you know, almost yeah. like a pen and ink outline, that in its, in its own way is an abstraction because that's certainly not how they appear no. in, in reality or in and the not, physical world. No, I think that's really perceptive. And I mean, it's also, I think I grew up in the 60s. I was born in the 60s and I grew up with DC Comics and cartoons that, you know, that was how things were depicted. And it was very pop inspired and, you know, there was the black line and then colored in. And I think that places me in my culture. When you start thinking about things that you didn't recognize as part of your own cultural heritage, I think of this is like the the normal way and all right. the other ways are like <laughs> variations right. on that and right. really it's just infinite variation yeah. and that seems like part of what you are trying to bring into your work. Right, right. and I, I'm always surprised at how many architects and engineers and creative, smart, nerdy guys love my work. I mean, it's flowers, but it's because they're sensing Batman cartoons, you know? There is a heroicism and a mathematical sensibility and something that is the muscular structure that they relate to, too. You've talked a lot about abstraction mm -hmm. and the idea of being drawn to the abstract. Mm -hmm. And I think some people might come to your show and not immediately read that these are abstract Right. pieces of, of art. What does that mean in the context of your work? And what is, what is abstract art beyond, you know, Jackson Pollock or something that is very sort of referential for, for most people? When they think of abstract, they think of non-figurative color on canvas. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that with my drawings of the plants, 
I am really concerned about color and pattern and movement. Like you said, I'm concerned about a disorientation of placement so that it's not particularly narrative. They sort of plop you off in this place, you know, like a, a starting ground for abstraction. You don't totally know where you are, and so you don't start to make a narrative of it. You're not really allowed to know on an intellectual plane, well, this is depicting this, and that starts to lead you towards abstractions. And I, and I say abstraction also because I'm going closer in my art to more abstraction. The large-scale flower drawings read as less abstract on their face than the black drawings that we spoke about, which are almost, some of them are, are iconic, symbolic, that that's how they read. When I started to draw again, I decided I wanted my studio practice to be simpler and more straightforward and really something that gave me joy. And the thing that was most natural to me as a child was drawing. And I would, I would literally do what I now do, spend hours a day alone in my room drawing. And those drawings were pattern. And so I think that's my first language is abstraction. But I don't think I had the confidence that I could communicate something that was true and real directly through abstraction. You know, when, you, when you're in front of a good, like a, an abstract piece, you can like the color or you can like the feel of it. You know, whatever it is, you can enjoy it. It's color, it's materiality, it's fun. But when you're in front of a real abstract piece that is a work of art, you know, you're standing in front of a Rothko and it is a good Rothko, it's transportive. It's like beam me up. There is something happening that is so deeply relational and so thoughtful and so, you know, you're not just reading the parts, you are actually uniting, sort of. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I think I didn't feel like I could work in abstraction till I understood abstraction. On a, you know, and I respected abstraction, and I think the more I meditate, the more I do. I felt like I had to get my street creds on before I could really advance with that. Well, Nancy Bloom, thank you so much for being here with me this afternoon at the Reynolds Gallery among your beautiful work for Look-See. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's just been my pleasure. It's really, I think as an artist, one of my most gratifying experiences is when I feel like the art is understood by somebody who also has the capacity to verbally understand it and then dialogue. So that's really rewarding. Thank you. Thank you. Nancy Bloom, New Work, guest curated by Ashley Kistler, is on view at Reynolds Gallery through December 22nd. You can listen to this and all our past shows on our website, look-c.co. Look-C is the place to indulge your curiosity about artists, ideas, places, and events in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thanks for listening to the Look-C podcast. Look-C.